0: I think most of us are familiar with the idea of tying a string around our finger to remind ourselves of something. I mean, it's such a familiar idea in our culture that it's commonly used as an icon to mean a reminder or remembering. For example, I have this icon that I found out there to get that point across to us. But have you ever really? Done it? I mean, have you ever literally tied a string around your finger to help you remember something? The first thing that you might discover is it's not very easy to do to tie the string around your finger. You have to be pretty good to just pull that off. Does it work? may sound kind of funny that we would do something like tie a string around our finger to help us remember something but these memory joggers they can work can't they i mean some other memory joggers that people use are putting an object in an unexpected place to jog their memory an example is someone might put something right in the doorway so that they'll be forced to stumble over it as they're leaving and they'll go oh i remember i'm supposed to bring that thing to work with me today Uh, We might put a note somewhere that we're sure to look. A friend of mine, he puts sticky notes on his steering wheel to remind himself of things. We might set an alarm with our watch or our phone. We might send ourselves a text message or an email. Now, these memory joggers, the the problem is they're not completely fail-safe, though, are they? I mean, I can't count the number of times when they have failed me. I mean, I've set an alarm and then worked right through it. I've sent myself a text message and then failed to notice it. I've put up a sticky note and then not noticed it until it was too late. It can be a challenge to remember our reminder to remember. How do we remember things that are more complicated and important than get milk on the way home from work today? For example, how do you remember information that was covered in a class for a test you're going to take? How do you remember how to do a complicated task on a computer? How do you remember your PIN code for the ATM? There are lots of techniques for remembering things, but an element that is present in virtually every one of them is repetition. Now, it's not glamorous. But most methods to help us remember when broken down into their most basic elements, they involve repetition in some way, don't they? Repetition helps to make things stick in our memory, and repetition helps things to continue to stick in our memory. Repetition with application is even better. Doing or using or putting into practice something again and again, it helps it stick even more, doesn't it? If I learn a new skill, but then I don't actually start using that skill, I'll forget that skill. To ensure something is not forgotten over a long period of time, we can record it in some way. We write it down. We take a photograph. We make a video. The Bible is an example of something that has been written down so that we won't forget it. In the passage that we're going to be looking at today from the letter of 2 Peter, Peter expresses his desire to remind us of, to refresh our memories about important truths concerning Jesus Christ to make sure that we will always remember them. Now before we get into that passage, I want to quickly remind us of what we talked about last time, hoping it will help us to remember these things. In 2 Peter 1, 3 through 3-11, which is what we looked at last time, Peter tells us that everything we need for living a life that pleases God has been given to us by God through our knowing Jesus Christ. God has made it possible for us to participate in the divine life to become more and more like Jesus Christ. Through faith, we take hold of the amazing promises given to us in Jesus Christ. And to our faith, we are then to add goodness, he tells us, and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness and mutual affection and love. He said these qualities growing in our life is how we participate in the divine knowledge, increasing in Jesus-likeness. And it ensures our spiritual life remains healthy and fruitful. You remembered all that? Don't even answer the question. It'll break my heart. Let's flip over to first, or I mean to 2 Timothy. Uh, 2 Timothy. 2nd Peter, did you remember what book we're in? I didn't. Second <laughs> Peter chapter 1, verse 12. Peter writes, he says, So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it's right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me and I will make every effort to see that after my departure you will always be able to remember these things. In these verses we gain some insight into what is weighing upon Peter's heart as he writes this letter. He knows his time on earth is short. So he wants to make sure that we don't forget the things that he's taught us after he's gone. He expresses this three times in these four verses that we've just read. And then again, a little later in the letter, in chapter 3. In verse 12, he says, I will always remind you of these things. Verse 13, I think it's right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body. Then verse 15, I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. And then down in 2 Peter 3.1, he says, dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Peter is not a young man. It's believed he's probably in his late 60s, age-wise at this point. The persecutions of Nero against the Christians in Rome have started. We talked about that in our introductory remarks of the letter a few weeks ago. Peter knows his departure, he says here, or his death is not far off. He tells us that Jesus has made that clear to him in verse 14. If you knew you had a very limited amount of time left to live, how would you spend it? Would you try to quickly do as many things on your bucket list as you could with the time remaining? Would you look to strengthen relationships with people most important to you? Would you spend your time feeling sorry for yourself? For most, the reality of one's Approaching death has a distilling and clarifying effect on their life. The most important things come into focus. Pointless pursuits are dropped. Energy is directed to things thought most important. What does Peter spend his energy on? Verse 15, he says, And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, after my death, you will always be able to remember these things. Peter spends his last days making sure that people remember the things he's taught them about Jesus Christ. He's not concerned with people remembering him personally, but rather remembering the things that he's taught them about Jesus. He wants to make sure that we remember who Jesus is, what Jesus has accomplished for us, what Jesus is still going to accomplish for us, and how Jesus wants us to live our life while on this planet. Peter's not trying to introduce new information and new ideas. He wants us to remember what he's already told us. Peter's attitude about this is almost comical when placed alongside the current world that we live in. We are information gluttons, gobbling up bits and pieces of information as fast as we can, continually on the hunt for something new. Our web browsers are on fire trying to keep up with our darting eyes and flying fingers. But let's ask ourselves a question. How much of that huge, mass of information that we are continually pouring through our brain actually sticks and is remembered? If you're like me, the answer is not much. In fact, I don't think I am retaining any more information now than I was before the internet information boom happened. See, I am being exposed to more information than before, but I'm not remembering any more information than I was before. There's an important lesson I think we can learn from Peter here, that not all information is created equal. Some information is a complete waste of our gray matter. While some un- Some other information is so important that we should, as he says, make every effort to always remember it. What information is so important that we should make every effort to remember it? The kind of stuff that Peter's reminding us about in his letter. Who Jesus is. What he's accomplished for us. What he's going to accomplish for us. How Jesus wants us to live our life. The meat and the potatoes of the Christian life. This is the stuff that we can't afford to forget. Go ahead and let a lot of that other stuff just go in one ear and out the other, as they say. But the Jesus knowledge, it needs to stick. We need to make every effort to ensure that it sticks. It it takes effort to ensure that it sticks because we're forgetful about things. We're leaky vessels what gets poured in is constantly leaking out. To overcome this leaking we need to keep pouring it in, don't we? We need to keep learning and reminding ourselves of these things. Peter tells us that we don't need to pour new and different stuff into us, but instead the same tried and true stuff. First Peter 3.2, we read it a moment ago. He said, I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the commands given by our Lord and Savior through your prophets or through your apostles. It's a temptation for us to think that we need to add new information. It's important that we remember the stuff that we've already been told. Peter says, I want you to remember the stuff that I've told you. Before moving forward in the passage here, I want us to take note of how Peter refers to his body. He calls it a tent in verse 13. He calls it his tent, highlighting the temporary nature of his body and the eternal nature of the rest of him. The same is true for you and me, this body that we're living in. It's like a tent. It's a temporary dwelling. We're only in this body for a short time. But we have a new body waiting for us, an eternal house, we're told, which won't have all of these troublesome weaknesses that this body does. And it's this eternal house that we're encouraged to put our greatest effort into, isn't it? First Timothy 4.8, For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Well, verse 16, 2 Peter 1, says, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. In other words, these are not made-up stories about Jesus Christ, he says, something that they came up with out of their own imaginations. What Peter says here in these verses, is very similar to what John says in the opening verses of his letter of 1 John, where he writes, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, he's saying, I heard, I've seen, which we have looked at, our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. He's talking about Jesus Christ. The life appeared, we have seen it, And testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Peter and John both make the point that what they know about Jesus Christ comes from first-hand knowledge and experience. Unlike the false teachers, who Peter will address a little bit later in this letter, who were making up a bunch of stuff that God had supposedly said to them through these esoteric experiences that they had, Peter, he knew Jesus personally. Peter lived with Jesus. He worked with Jesus. He ate with Jesus. He laughed and joked with him. He cried with him. He observed him perform miracles. He listened to him talk. He asked him questions. He felt his warm touch. He knew Jesus personally. And the event from Peter's time with Jesus that Peter then now makes reference to in these next verses, verses 17 and 18, is what has come to be called the transfiguration. Verse 17 he says, he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Peter says, I was there. I, I heard. I heard it. Well, let's slip over to the gospel of Matthew for a moment and take a look at this story that Peter makes reference to. Matthew 16, verse 28. Jesus is speaking, and he says, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So this is kind of setting up what's about to take place, and then in the first verse of chapter 17, the actual event takes place. It says, After six days... Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright light covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground terrified, but Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. Well, that's a wild story for sure, isn't it? This mysterious moment in history that took place on the mountain that day was like a wrinkle in the space-time continuum that we exist in. It was like a window into the eternal realm, a glimpse given to them behind the curtain, so to speak, where Peter and James and John got to see the glory of Jesus unmasked. What we have here in the transfiguration is similar, but the opposite of of what happened in The Wizard of Oz. In The Wizard of Oz, when the curtain was pulled back, it revealed a little old man pulling some levers and pushing some buttons, creating this huge, terrifying, godlike representation through the use of special effects and smoke and mirrors. In The Transfiguration we have the glory of the eternal God breaking through the human shroud or curtain, giving us a glimpse of the true majesty and power and holiness of God the Son. In the Wizard of Oz, we see that the truth behind the wizard was just a man. In the Transfiguration, we see that the truth behind the man, Jesus, is the glorious almighty God that he really is. It'll be this glorious Son of God who Peter saw at the transfiguration that's going to appear at the second coming of Jesus Christ rather than the humble, suffering servant who laid down his life for his people at his first appearing. Our faith does not rest on cleverly devised stories, as Peter says in verse 16. It's important that we know that our faith is not built upon cleverly devised stories, but on solid, reasonable evidence. We don't have to put our brain into the refrigerator in order to believe Christianity. Simply believing something doesn't make it true, though. On the other hand, something can be true whether we believe it or not. Truth is independent of belief And that's the case with Christianity. It's true whether a person chooses to believe it or not. Christianity is not true because we believe it. Christianity is true whether we believe it or not. Peter gives two important pieces of evidence in this passage for us to consider. And the first is his own and others' eyewitness accounts of Jesus that he's made reference to here. He saw Jesus and what he did, who demonstrated in many ways that he is the Christ through his teachings, his miracles, his death, his resurrection, his post-resurrection appearances. And the second piece of evidence that Peter makes reference to in this passage that we're looking at today is the prophecies of the Old Testament that have been fulfilled in Jesus. He mentions these in verses 19 through 21, which we'll look at here in just a moment. But Jesus and the events surrounding his life fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament in strikingly accurate detail. The Old Testament contains over 300 prophecies about the Messiah that have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Some people have argued that the fulfillment of these prophecies by Jesus was merely a coincidence. Now, to refute that, a professor, Peter Stoner, in his book, Science Speaks, he calculated the probability of someone fulfilling these messianic prophecies of the Old Testament merely by chance. Some of his results were as follows. The chance that any one person might have lived down to the present time and fulfilled just eight of those messianic prophecies is one in ten raised to the seventeen power. That's one with 17 zeros behind it, one in 100,000 trillion. To illustrate this, Peter Stoner said that if you were to take 10 to the 17 silver dollars and laid them out on the state of Texas, they would cover the state to a depth of two feet. Now mark one of those silver dollars with an X with your Sharpie pen and then throw it out into the middle of the state of Texas somewhere and stir all of those silver dollars up. Then blindfold somebody and send him out to travel as far as he wants into the state of Texas and choose one silver dollar. The chance that he chose the silver dollar that you marked with an X is 1 to 10 in the 17 power. The chance that... Any person might have fulfilled 48 of the main prophecies is one in 10 raised to the 157 power. That's one with 157. One with 157 zeros behind it. I don't know how to say that number. Jesus has fulfilled over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament. The fulfillment of the Prophecies in the Old Testament is a significant piece of information for us, of evidence of who Jesus is. Verse 19, Peter writes, We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So this is that second piece of information that Peter gives us for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, the written word of God, the scriptures that came through the prophets of God. And we have here in verses 20 and 21 an explanation of how the written scriptures came to be. The scriptures, which we commonly refer to as the Bible, are not a collection of various people's own ideas written down, not musings of their own imaginations they have a divine origin they are from god they are what we call inspired the concept of inspiration is described by peter here as prophets though human spoke as they were carried along by the holy spirit paul describes inspiration in 2 timothy 3:16 as all scripture is god breathed now we don't know the exact details of how this process took place but as it says in the New Bible Dictionary, it says Scripture has a double authorship, and a man is only the secondary author, the primary author, through whose initiative, prompting and enlightening, and under whose superintendence each human writer did his work, is God the Holy Spirit. Easton's Bible Dictionary describes it this way. The writers were supernaturally guided to express exactly what God intended them to express as a revelation of his mind and will. The human author did not simply write down words dictated to them by the Holy Spirit as though they were a human typewriter. What? Second Peter. Didn't happen like that. God could have used a machine to do that, but he used human beings. Instead, both God and the human author were involved in the process. The personality of the human author was not suppressed or removed from the writing. We can see that clearly if we read Peter's writings compared to Paul's writings, and there is a distinction personality in each of those Peter sounds different than Paul they express themselves differently so the human personality remains intact in the writing even though it is inspired so at the same time the person's personality it didn't cancel out or tarnish or mar the writing from being the word of God perfectly expressed and recorded well, what parts of the Bible do we believe are divinely inspired? All of it. Every book in the volume, every word in the original language it was written in. Jesus said this about the scriptures in Matthew five seventeen says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. The written word of God, the Bible, is extremely important for us in our own day. We don't have the apostles among us any longer. But in the scriptures, we have their teachings preserved for us so that we can remember what Peter and the others taught so that we can remember what has been taught because we believe the Bible is the word of God. It has authority to speak into our lives. It provides the benchmark against which we measure everything else in our life. We use the documents contained in the Bible to discern truth from falsehood, sound doctrine from false teaching. These writings that we have in the Bible define what Christianity is. The Bible provides guidance for our life. For things that the Bible speaks directly about, we can just follow the instructions, can't we? Do not lie. Just don't lie. We just follow it. The Bible doesn't speak directly about every possible situation that we might face in this life, though. But it provides wisdom for navigating through everything in our life. It gives us parameters to live by and overarching principles that we can use to make choices. It provides fences for our life. It confronts us about our sin. It encourages us when we're down, it reminds us of God's love for us. It feeds and nourishes our soul. Second Timothy three sixteen, Paul wrote, All scripture is God breathed, I made reference to that a moment ago, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Psalm one nineteen one oh five says, Your word is a lamp for my feet a light on my path. <clears throat> in closing this morning, faith in, faith in Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah who came from God, who lived among us, died as a sacri- sacrifice for our sins, who came back to life on the third day, is based on reasonable evidence. We have mentioned some of that evidence today. We have the eyewitness accounts of those who knew Jesus, who were with Jesus, like Peter, and we have the fulfilled prophecies in the Scripture. Have you put your faith in Jesus as your Savior? Have you asked him to come into your life, forgive your sins, and give you a new life? Jesus Christ came to bridge that infinite chasm that exists between us and God because of our sin so that we can have a new personal relationship with God as our Heavenly Father. You can be forgiven of all of your sin, have your guilt before God removed and taken away, have a new purpose in life, have the emptiness filled and have heaven to look forward to. And to begin this new relationship, we need to each recognize and admit that we have a problem, that we're separated from God, that we have sinned, that we need his help. We've been living our life for ourselves instead of for God. We need to repent, which means we need to change the direction, the behavior, and the attitude of our life and start following Jesus Christ. We need to ask Jesus to come into our life and begin to make us into that person that he wants us to be. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Those of you who have never received Christ and you want to, you can uh, pray this very simple prayer with me and then we'll close uh, in prayer for all of us. For those of you who would like to receive Christ and start this new life today. Just say, Lord Jesus, I believe you died for my sins and came back to life to give me eternal life. Forgive me. Save me. I'm giving myself to you from this day forward. Come into my life and change me. Lord, I pray for all of us here in this moment that you would strengthen our faith. Lord, we thank you that you have given us the scriptures which have recorded for us things to never be forgotten so that we will not forget these things, that we can be reminded of these truths, Lord, of who you are, Jesus, and what you have done for us. I pray, God, that you would encourage each of us in our Faith this morning, you would strengthen us. God, that you would call us to yourself into a a renewed personal relationship with you this day. I pray that you would fill this week with your joy and your peace, that that would be seen on our faces by those around us. May you glorify yourself in our lives, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.